I have a surprise for you in honor of February. Dana and I have this thing we can't quite find common ground upon concerning birthdays. She's a minimalist from a wholly unsentimental Pennsylvania family. I'm a materialist raised by a mother who calls presents prizes and gives gifts as a part of her love language. While I'm old enough not to care, I still want my birthday to be a celebration of me. It's small in spirit, but in that self-diagnosis we will attempt on our own psyches. I was the child of a beautiful woman who attracted men who wanted her but tolerated me. Birthdays were my mother's way of reminding me that, at least to her, I was someone of note. I'm putting the blue in the toilet. Another unusual record skip in our marriage is those tidy bowl tablets you put in a tank and turns the water blue. To her, they are a sign of white trash, low culture, unnecessary expense. To me, they are an odd bluish signal of semi-wealth and extravagance. For the most part, the toilet remains clear. She likes it that way because then she can examine the color of her urine to see if she's been hydrating properly. Too yellow and she's not. Once in a moon, she indulges me with a tab of unnatural blue with a hint of ammonia. It's stupid, but I love it every time. Now, we're both Aquarians, which means we both are almost zealous in our personal independence, and the sight of her in one bedroom and I on the couch doing our separate things in the same space is common. We do well together. Our differences, in terms of how we view money, consumerism, art, reading, politics, are bizarrely cultural now, my DNA is mostly Irish, some British, a bit of African-American, some Native American, but mostly Irish. I have the fair skin and propensity to addictive behavior of someone Irish, but culturally, I'm not one who embraces Ireland or her ways. Culturally, I'm a bit trailer trash, a dash biker gang, a sprinkling of Southern United States with a Midwestern sensibility. I'm an American mutt. A child of the 70s, a Gen X guy who came of age in the 80s. I'm the archetype of classic rock and slightly retrograde sexist attitudes that almost every Motley Crue and Scorpion song conveys. I still call women I meet darling and honey as a sign of friendliness. I prefer to throw the rock and roll horns to a thumbs up. I have tattoos, but most are quotes of my favorite authors. Culturally, I'm a fucking mess, man. I have friends who live a more culturally identifiable life. I'll admit to being somewhat envious of them. Arlo is black. I mean, black, black. He is originally from a tiny county in Georgia and laughs as I tell him how much he fits the stereotype of a 60-year-old black man from Georgia. He could be played in a movie by Louis Gossett Jr., and he cackles. Arlo has a love-hate relationship with his cultural bedrock. He loves the food, barbecued pork, collard greens, black-eyed peas. My grandma's kitchen table was what I think Arab suicide bombers dream of instead of virgins. He loves the music. Mississippi John Hurt, John Hooker, buddy guy, shit. He hates the drug culture, which he was surrounded by growing up. He hates the idea that all black people can dance. No one in my family had any of that. No dancing. Jim, his Korean name is Jung Hoon, but everyone who knows him calls him Jim, tells me he feels out of place when he sees his family. I guess I'm uh, like a self-loathing Jew in that I'm Korean, but by way of Decatur, Illinois. Culturally, he's a no-zone in that his parents tried to instill the cultural markers of a second-generation Korean kid, but he was never really into it. I always hated kimchi, hot pockets, pepperoni. Give me a bag of Doritos, please. 
What the three of us all have in common is comic books. All three of us claim to have learned to read courtesy of Stan Lee. The Fantastic Four, The Avengers, The Amazing Spider-Man, The X-Men. The difference between the DC world and the Marvel world was that the heroes in DC were gods, and the heroes in Marvel, mostly, were humans with godlike power. These were the legends and fables of growing up. These were the morality tales of my youth. From Peter Parker, I learned that with great power comes great responsibility. From Logan, his mantra that the pain lets you know you're still alive resonated. Daredevil showed that any liability can be overcome, you know, with the help of some radioactive waste. Bruce Banner instructed that anger can be managed. As an angry Irish-esque kid in nowhere Kansas during high school, I needed that lesson. Arlo loved Luke Cage, but not the Netflix one, the one with the chains and the afro. I was country black, but he made city black look cool. And Jim was a big, huge fan of Ben Grimm. He always felt like a freak, but he had his family to give him a purpose. I had girlfriends who'd broken my heart, but nothing I could compare to Peter Parker's grief from Amazing Spider-Man 121-122 the night Gwen Stacy died. Not only did he lose his great love, he snapped her neck trying to save her. Holy fuck! I was seven years old when I read that, and the gravity of a beloved hero failing so horribly was traumatic. It took me years to process. Iron Man 120 through 128 has Tony Stark dealing full bore with his alcoholism in Demon in a Bottle. The entire early X-Men storylines find an incredible synthesis of the civil rights issues of the late 60s, while the debates about discrimination, nonviolent versus violent protests, and inclusion bypassed my 10-year-old brain. The ideological battles between Charles Xavier and Magneto set the groundwork for when I started reading James Baldwin in high school. Even more pervasive in the Marvel Universe was the idea that heroes were as flawed as the villains. Dr. Octopus was the bad guy, but not evil. Galactus was not evil, but simply trying to survive, and his means of staying alive involved eating planets. The crossover of villains to heroes was commonplace in the Marvel Universe, cementing an ethic that anyone, even Magneto, could find redemption. My friend has a kid who loves his superheroes. His introduction to them was the MCU and the films of the Avengers. One day, he and his kid were watching Captain America Civil War, and the child wanted to know if Tony Stark was a good guy or a bad guy. And my buddy had a bit of a conundrum, because in this case, there was no easy answer. This is a bedrock principle of Marvel. There are no good guys or bad guys. Every character is flawed and can make mistakes. Every hero gets to take turns being selfish, afraid, greedy, and enraged. Every villain has a tortured past and is only the villain out of misguided and traumatized perspective, like the Netflix Daredevil series when Kingpin doesn't realize he's the bad guy until like the 13th episode and then is astonished by it. Comic books and the desire to be one of these flawed superheroes are culturally important to me. They are as defining of who I am and who I wish to be as natural hair on a black woman working in an office defines her or traditional prayer rituals are to someone raised in a church. These heroes have been a part of my life since I can remember having memories, and I've been engaged with them since that nebulous time. Now, is in that culture? Isn't that my cultural identity? We Gen X types were raised, in part consuming pop culture in ways previous generations did not. Hours upon hours of televised stories infused into the soft tissue like an army of Manchurian candidates waiting for the buzzwords to activate our consumerist triggers. 
The advent of VHS tapes made viewing movies the ultimate babysitter. While a kid born and raised on the streets of Detroit might have very little in common with another born and raised in Idaho, both had cultural roots in their mutual boners for Jill Monroe and devastation over the death of Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake. A black kid in Birmingham, Alabama could be as racially different from a white kid in Salt Lake City, Utah, but both could bond over Star Wars and Nintendo. As I read it, culture is comprised of four things in increasing levels of significance. Symbols, heroes, rituals, and values. But that quite academic frame, by that quite academic frame, it seems that that as we parse out our differences in our current multicultural war in America, it's a fixation on the symbols that seem to trip us up. Skin color, hair, clothing and style, food, language, sexual proclivities and the presence of certain genitalia are all surface level identifiers. They are the symbols of each human on display. I knew a white guy who grew up on the south side of Chicago, went to a predominantly black populated schools, had mostly black teachers, and whose only friends were black. He dressed black, spoke black, acted black. Did any of that make him somehow less white? And does that make any difference? I know a black woman. You'd know her too if I shared her New York Times best-selling name, who, if you talk to her on the phone, sounds like the secretary from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but looks like Wheezy Jefferson from Good Times. Did her accent and nerdy mannerisms make her less black, and does that make any difference? Culture is how you were raised, a friend tells me. A lot of it is hidden in the back. It's not just the food you ate growing up, but why that food and not something else. It's what your family decided to spend money on and what they wouldn't spend money on. It's those weird rituals you practiced every holiday. It's the clothes you wore, but more deep than the fashion is why you wore those specific clothes. He tells a story about clothes. His family didn't have a lot of money. They saved cash by handing clothes down from one sibling to the next. He was frugal and smart with five kids. By the time my friend got the clothes, he was number four of the five, the strain of wear the places his mother had stitched up was obvious. And his little brother got new clothes because four was the limit of the physical shirts and pants. My friend spends a lot of money on fashion. He wears the latest trends and has a closet full of suits. He says he spends maybe a third of his take-home on shoes. That's culture in real time. I don't dress up for much. I own no suits. I have ties, but they're mostly Marvel, Star Wars, and Beatles ties. My dress shoes are either decent tennis shoes or boots. When I was a kid, my mother wanted to please her aunt. Her aunt was a churchgoer, so we joined her church. I remember the date she told me I couldn't go to church because my clothes weren't up to snuff. You can't go to church dressed like that, she guffawed. I recall being embarrassed. I didn't have anything nicer. She laughed at my best clothes. It obviously stuck, because I still cringe at the memory. As a result, I bristle at the idea of dressing up for anything or for anybody, and I do not go to church. That's culture in real time. While a follower of the Avengers as a kid, I was never a fan of Captain America. No good reason for that. Steve Rogers just never did it for me. That is, until Chris Evans portrayed the character in the MCU movies. Maybe it was my time to appreciate his retro goodness. Maybe I needed to be a bit older to fully appreciate his specific kind of superhero. Perhaps I needed to live some life before the ideas that I can do this all day persistence did me any good. 
The belief in something so strong that he'd go against all of his friends in a fight. His loyalty to Bucky, despite the fact that his childhood friend had become a villain. His enduring love for Peggy Carter. His stalwart acceptance that he is almost a century older than he looks, and most of his friends are long dead. I didn't need those values as a kid. I need those values today. Now, Dana is 14 years younger than I am. No, I wasn't looking for a third wife who was born when I was entering high school. It just kind of worked out that way. The age difference feels sometimes like I was encased in ice for 75 years, only to be resurrected long after the war was won. The differences we have are bizarrely cultural. She's a free spirit. I'm a worker bee. She's a poet in need of inspiration and subject to the mood swings of that breed of writer. I'm an essayist who approaches writing like the laying of bricks to build a house, who becomes more a follower of stoicism the older I get. She grew up in the same house she was born in. I grew up moving from place to place with no true sense of physical grounding. She is relentlessly frugal. I am an impulse buyer. But we make it work. And once in a while, I wake up in the morning just to take a leak. And the toilet water is blue. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts.